This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for coming, everybody. It's good to see all of you. Is there anyone new here today? Hi. Did you go to beginner's class this morning? No. No. <laughs> you still got that to look forward to. Anyway, welcome. So, um, so today I'm going to talk about no, no merit. No merit. So, a few factoids about Bodhidharma, and factoid probably isn't a good word because there really aren't a whole lot of facts about Bodhidharma. Most of this I gleaned from Wikipedia. Bodhidharma probably came to China, it's not too clear just when, but I'm going to say around the year 500. I don't think that's too far off. And he's considered Zen's first ancestor in China. He was Indian. He's purportedly from southern India, maybe the son of a king. If he existed, he may not have existed. It's not, it's not for certain. Uh, he's considered semi-mythological, and a lot of things about him are very mythological. His teacher in India, who we call Hanyatara, uh, may have been a woman. He was red-haired and he had blue eyes, and because he was a foreigner in China, he was called a barbarian. So he's called the red-haired barbarian. So he purportedly sat in a cave for nine years, facing uh, the wall of the cave. And now, now this is the mythological part. Apparently he fell asleep about the seventh year. <laughs> the first time he fell asleep, I don't know. But, uh, and so in order to prevent that from, from continuing to happen, he cut off his eyelids. This is why when you see pictures of him... There's actually a statue of him in the entryway. Do you want to... Sure. Yeah. Oh, all right. His, his eyes are always all bugged out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And he threw his eyelids on the ground and uh, tea sprouted, and that was so Bloody Dharma brought tea to China. So, and another uh, myth about him is that after sitting for a long time, his legs atrophied, and that's why we have these little uh, Daruma dolls that you've probably seen that you can get in, you know gift shops and things are red and they're round and I know we've got some around here. They're Bodhidharma dolls, so they're called Daruma dolls and they don't have legs because of legs atrophy. So whether or not this man as he's been described really existed, we don't know for sure, but somebody, some around this time, or maybe somebody's did bring uh, Zen to China. So we call it Bodhidharma. The other person I want to introduce is Emperor Wu of Liang, who was the emperor of, uh, of China, who, and he's, he's uh, really confirmed as a real person. He was actually in power from 502 to 549. He was Confucian, but he really embraced Buddhism so much that he even became a monk several different times. He gave a lot of money to Buddhist uh, sanghas, and he had temples built, and he... Uh, was involved in education. He was even compared to Ashaka, uh, the Indian guy who founded the university and was so respected. So he was uh, an amazing person. He did a lot. He did a lot for Buddhism, even though he really called himself a Confucian. 
uh, but he really uh, understood, or to some extent, he understood the practice of Buddhism, but didn't completely understand it. Because he asked, uh, uh, there was a, um, these two came together around the year 527. Now that date I got off of Wikipedia, I don't know if it's true, but if it is true, it does seem to confirm that there was somebody uh, filling this role of Bodhidharma. They came together and, uh, and publicly Emperor Wu asked Bodhidharma, he said, how much merit have I earned for uh, ordaining Buddhist monks and building monasteries, having sutras copied, commissioning images, and the Buddha Dharma is reported to just gruffly say, no merit. We don't know if he might not have explained a little more, but you know, when it comes down as no merit. Emperor Wu said, so what's the highest meaning of the noble truth? And Bodhidharma said, there is no noble truth. It's all emptiness. Emperor Wu persisted, who is this standing in front of me? Who are you? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. I don't know your majesty. Well, uh, the reason I sort of went the way of talking about this is I was reading the Platform Sutra. Platform Sutra was written well, close to 150 or 200 years later, after this took place with Bodhidharma and Emperor Wu, it was written by the sixth ancestor, whose name is Chinese, is Wei Nang. How many people know the story of Wei Nang? Well, not that many, so I'll just very, very, very briefly just... Uh, Wei Nang was uh, illiterate. He was His father apparently was uh, somebody. It was some kind of a official in some government and for whatever reason he was banished. Maybe he took part in something like the January 6th hearings uh, <laughs> or something and made his boss angry. Anyway, he got banished and so Wing and his mother, uh, well and then very shortly after he got banished you know, he went to another you know, district or prefect, you know, what, what are those things called? In, in another, another part of China. And he died, uh, and so Wing was very young, and he had to support his mother. So he sold wood. He, he chopped wood and sold wood. I guess if he lived here, we'd call him a cedar chopper. So they were very desperately poor, and of course he was working all the time, so he didn't get an education. Um, but he had something pretty special because at one point in time, he was delivering some wood to a store, and in front of the store there was a man sitting, and he was reciting the Diamond Sutra. And Wei Neng heard it and instantly understood. I, um, I think he even tells what words he heard, but I didn't copy them down, so I don't know. But anyway, he instantly understood what the man was talking about. Kind of had a little bit of an enlightenment experience, and which is, you know, just sort of amazing. And he asked them, you know, he found out where this guy got the his, his knowledge and um, told him, that he was from a monastery called the Dungshan Monastery, which was, whose abbot was a man named Hungjur. Well, Hungjur just happens to be our fifth ancestor. We call him Dailan Konin in our, uh, in Japanese, and that's what we have in our gent. He's the fifth ancestor, and he uh, ran this this huge monastery, had over a thousand monks. So, Wiening, uh found somebody, or somebody volunteered, stepped up and offered to pay a stipend to his mother so that he was free to go to this monastery. That's how much important it was to him. And he, um, he, it took him 30 days of walking to get there. 
this monastery was in the south, and he was from North China. And you know, at that time, there was always this big rivalry between more than a rivalry, really, between North and South. And Northern Chinese people were considered barbarians. They liked that word a lot, or at least our we translate whatever it was they called people they considered not very worthy. So he was illiterate, he was a barbarian, and he went to this big monastery and he presented himself to Hungjur, the fifth ancestor. And Hungjur, you know, said, what are you doing here, barbarian? You know, what are you doing, uh, you know, I guess, he said, I, I came here uh, uh, to become a Buddha. I don't know if he said become a Buddha, but I came here to realize Buddhahood. Yeah, I came here to realize Buddhahood. And he wasn't given much encouragement, although secretly, the fifth, oh, oh, he's, oh another thing he said, he said something uh, to the fifth priest, uh, the fifth patriarch, he said, you know, us people from the north and you people from the south, we look different, but we all have Buddha nature. So it was a pretty, pretty incredibly wise thing for an illiterate uh, barbarian to say, and of course I think that almost immediately the fifth patriarch realized he had somebody pretty special on his hands. But at any rate, because there were a thousand monks in this monastery and he was afraid that there would be jealousy and there would be uh, even violence, you know, against uh, this guy if it were exposed that he was, you know, he was somebody important. So I sent him he sent him to the uh, kitchen far away from the monks' hall. Um, we never even saw the monks' hall until almost a year later. Uh, and he um, was, his job was to pound rice and to chop it, split, split wood. Close to a year later, Jerry came to visit him in the kitchen and in a secret way kind of arranged a meeting with him to, to come to his quarters at midnight. There were other things that happened that are important, but I'm going to slip over some of them. There were other ways that he had showed his, uh, his understanding, deep understanding, and it was very apparent that his understanding was deeper than any of the other monks in that monastery. So at midnight he met secretly with the um, abbot, the Hunger, and Hunger uh, said, I'm going to make you the sixth ancestor. I'm going to give you my robe and my bowl, and you got to get out of here, though. You got to run away. You got to stay hidden for a long time, because you will get you could get killed. And indeed, there were people that chased him. So he hung out in the boondocks of the south, which wasn't his native land, for about fifteen years, a long, long time. And uh, there's even a funny story about he hung out with some um, hunters at one point in time. And the hunters get, uh, let him live with them, and his job was to free an the animals. Uh, not free the animals. His job was to, uh, you know, bring in the animals that they caught in their nets. But we didn't let the animals go if they were alive. <laughs> so I'm not quite sure how how uh, this worked out in the long run. But anyway, that was a funny story. And where did I hear all this? I heard this in the platform sutra because it's kind of amazing. Uh, the platform sutra. If I'm to, if I did, to believe the translator of the version of it that I read, is the only Chinese text that's allowed to be called a sutra. A sutra has to be the teachings of the Buddha. 
the sutras are from India, but this one sutra, or this one writing was allowed to be called a sutra, even though it was written by a Chinese master. It was written by Wei Neng, and it's a collection of his, uh, you know, just like our books today are collections of Dharma talks of teachers. It was a collection of a lot of his talks. But it starts out with this chapter where he relates this whole story of, that I just told you in very brief form. He tells the story about how he became a sixth ancestor, uh, which I'm sure wasn't part of the Buddhist teaching, but maybe in some mythological way it was. I don't know. And then he also recounts, uh, he recounts um, in, in a thing that happened where uh, once he, after this 15 years and he he started outed himself as a sixth ancestor, uh, and he started, you know, talking uh, more openly and being, you know, preaching and uh, and it didn't take long for people to uh, realize that he was, um, you know, very uh, wise and worthy of being the sixth ancestor. Uh, one of the things that happened, and this is another story in this amazing sutra was that he encountered those two monks that were arguing about the flag waving, the flag being blown about by the wind. One person was saying, one of the monks was saying, it's the flag, it's the flag that's moving, and the other guy said, no, it's the wind that's moving, and they weren't coming to any uh, agreement, and uh, Minang said, it's neither the flag nor the wind, it's your mind that's moving, and uh, they were amazed and probably enlightened immediately. Always seems to happen. <laughs> so another thing that he relates in, in the Platform Sutra is that he was invited to a feast by a, uh, a politician whose name was uh, Prefect um, Wei. Prefect Wei worked for the emperor in this his, uh, in this area of China. So uh, Prefect Wei wanted. Weening, he wanted to ask Weening some public questions, and so the first question he asked was, what about this Bodhidharma guy, you know, from 100 or 150 years ago? Who was he anyway, and why, uh, why did he say that this great man, uh, uh, Emperor Wu, who had done so much for Buddhism, why did he say no merit? And so... Uh, Weening does a bit of explaining about that. So that's what I wanted to talk about, this, his explanation or, you know, for why, why uh, Bodhidharma would say something like that to you know, a great man who'd done a lot of good. So, uh, Weening explained to the prefect uh, that Bodhidharma was not saying that good works are not needed or that there's anything wrong with doing them. What he was saying is that the problem is that thinking that our good works are something special. He wasn't saying that Emperor Wu and us don't deserve worldly praise, but that... Um, his good works, his good works came with a feeling of, of specialness and smugness and basically separateness. So Emperor was separating himself out as a person who was special, had done special things, and indeed he had. Wei Yang explained that the merit 
merits are to be found within the Dharmakaya. Now, um, what's the Dharmakaya? The Dharmakaya is the, the realm of the Buddha. And we call it our neighbor, our, our Buddha nature. When we're in the realm of the Dharmakaya, we do not feel separate from others. And we're all there sometimes, you know, believe it or not. Probably many, many times during the day, we, we, we step into that, that realm. And sometimes we don't, most of the time we don't know it, but we, we do. And we step out again, unfortunately. But, um, so he explained that merits can only be found in the realm of the Dharmakaya. So, how are we liking her? Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that all of us want to be special. I know I do. I hope I'm not the only one. I <laughs> we all want to be special. And we're never going to stop wanting to be special. I don't think. I mean, maybe there's some people that got there. I don't know. Maybe the Dalai Lama. Maybe Thich Nhat Hanh. I don't know. I think some people get there, but I, I don't expect to. And, uh, So we do things to get praise and affection from others. Sometimes we do helpful things just so we can feel good about ourselves. It's a little bit different from merit, but you know, it's it's a, um, not doing good for just for good's sake. We're hungry to be helpful. So what's wrong with being hungry to be helpful? Sounds like a pretty good thing, I guess, to be hungry to be helpful. Well, it's kind of a good thing, but it's not quite there. It's not quite zen. Because if we're hungry to be helpful, it means we don't think we are helpful. And so we have to um, prove it to ourselves and to others. So we get very busy doing, proving that we are helpful. Um, I'll, um, yeah. So actions that come from this place, that, you know, there's our actions that come from our thinking mind, actions that we decide we'll do for one reason or another, partly good reasons, partly pure reasons, and partly self-centered promotional reasons. Uh, actions that come from this place, are, which is our thinking mind or our conditioned mind, are called karma. So if they're good deeds, like Emperor Wu's, they're called their good karma. But Bodhidharma wants us to go farther. He wants us to go further than just do good karma. He wants us to transcend our karma, good and bad. Um, he wants us to spontaneously and naturally act in accordance with, with what's most necessary. Um, you know, these um, Suzuki Roshi talks about don't adding, not adding anything extra in our thinking, not adding anything extra to. Um, that means things like, well, you probably know what I mean, not adding anything extra. Good works come out of what Li Nang called essence of mind. He called essence, that was his word for Buddha nature or the Dharmakaya, it was the essence of mind, the essence of mind, the very core of our mind, which we are taught and hopefully believe is this wondrous Buddha nature that's you know, pretty much pure compassion and wisdom. And that's what we're, what we are, what we are. But we obscure it so much with all this extra thinking that we do uh, and promotion and self-promotion. So, um, 
So why is it wrong then to call uh, good deeds special? Or why is it not quite, why does it miss the point? I don't like to use the word wrong, but why does it miss the point? Uh, the reason is that um, when you're in a place of, when you're in your essence of mind, when you're in your Buddha nature, anything you do is helpful. That's that wisdom and that compassion. So anything is helpful. Nothing is special. That's why Suzuki Roshi talks about ordinary mind, the mind. Nothing is special. It's all just what we are. So talking about being something special is, again, adding on. Well, what is meritorious? I mean, if, 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 uh, if good deeds that come out of your thinking mind aren't meritorious, what is? Well, there's that example. I hate to bring this up because it's been talked about so many times in Dharma talks in here. Uh, but this, the koan about the pillow, you know, waking up in the night, someone wakes up, not completely, they don't completely wake up, they're half asleep and their head is all kinked over because the pillow's not in the right position and they straighten the pillow and thus, you know, their body is well aligned, they get a good night's sleep and something very beneficial was done. Uh, and there was no thinking, the person was half asleep, they just did it instinctively. That is something meritorious, a very small thing. And it's interesting that it's something this person did for themselves, but that doesn't matter. You know, we do something for ourselves, we do something for others, we're all the same, so it's all equal. Isn't that nice? We get to do stuff for ourselves and not feel selfish about it <laughs> because we're, um, yeah. I don't know which page am I on. should put others on the pages. So that's one example, a very small meritorious type of action. Here's what the Diamond Sutra says about merit. I'm going to read it. Well, he says in the Diamond Sutra, it's the Buddha talking to Sabuti. Sabuti, if there be one who gives away in gifts of alms a mass of the seven treasures, equally in extent to as many mighty Sumerus as there would be in 3,000 galaxies of worlds, if somebody gave all that away, and if there's another person who selects only four lines from this sutra, this diamond sutra, and receives and retains them and teaches them clearly, expounding them to others, the merit of that latter, that person that uh, read the four pages, would be so far greater than that of the former that no conceivable com comparison can be made of it. So that's the Mahayana for you. All those big uh, mind-bending, uh, mind-expanding hyperboles like that. Kind of fun to read, but. Which is one point I wanted to make, that Platform Sutra is not like that. It is a Mahayana Sutra, but it's not like that. It doesn't have all that stuff in it about it doesn't even mention the numbers of grains of sand in the Ganges and all that. <laughs> but, um, anyway, so how do we how do we work with this, knowing that we probably will never stop wanting to be special? Well, maybe I shouldn't assume that because maybe maybe some people will. I don't think I will. But um, how do we work with it? The work is deeply seeing through our motives, seeing our motives as we, as we go about in our life. 
And of course, we, that's why we meditate, or one of the reasons that we meditate, so that we, our minds can quiet down and we can see what's going on in there. What am I thinking? Why am I doing this? Um, what threats to go through mind? It's usually, there's, it's usually a pretty big mix of motives. But very gradually, as we watch our minds, we see the way we wish, we see how we wish to manipulate others or manipulate situations so they come out making us look good. We see how we contrive and the way, and the way we push for visible results. Um, and the way we strive to show the world that we are someone. It's natural. I mean, it's a, it's a, a natural thing that happens with the way we're conditioned. We want to show the world that we're that we're we're someone. Um, you know, for instance, here's some here's some examples. You ever go back and reread things that you wrote that you thought were really that show how talented a writer you are, or go back and review something that you've done that you're really you're really proud of, or. Um, do you check Facebook to see how many likes you have after you put something <laughs> out? No. <laughs> I'm not on Facebook. <laughs> I avoid it because of that reason, actually. <laughs> um, let's see, what else? Hey, when you give donations, do you ever give maybe a little extra $50 so you can get in the diamond circle instead of the gold circle in their brochure? No, you give donations. Or do you think, well, maybe I'll be, maybe I'll be anonymous, because that's, that's, that's more pure, if I'm, if I'm anonymous, you know. <laughs> should I, should I, should I? Um, hey, do you um, go out and are you proud to wear your, your Zen outfit when you go to the store because you're proud to practice Zen and you want people to know that you really associate with some pretty cool people that, you know, do this practice? <laughs> or on the other hand, do you avoid wearing your Zen clothes because you're afraid people will laugh at you or think that you're one of those cult people that does <laughs> practice? All of this kind of thinking is, of course, what Suzuki Roshi calls extra. And even though it's not a little off the subject of merit, it's, well, it's, it's the same stuff. So. Uh, yeah. So the more intimate we come, we become with this intimate baggage that we carry, this thinking stuff that we go back and forth about, the more we become uh, aware of what we're doing and, and how we're trying to angle ourselves for reward, the more, we can, the, more, um, the more it starts to not be quite so important in our lives. It might not even ever go away. Sometimes it does go away in some aspects of our life, um, but uh, it may not, but it doesn't exude, you know, it doesn't hold power over us the way um, it maybe once did. Sometimes it takes a long time of, of, this, of this watching of the mind. Um, but you know what, it's, I don't know, do you all enjoy it? Do you enjoy watching your mind? I do. I always found sometimes. it. <laughs> sometimes, right. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Most of the time, I find it pretty interesting, and um, yeah, and and you know, so we start to realize too that it really feels it feels it feels such a relief sometimes when we let go of some of this stuff. You know, it just feels good. That's the great thing about this practice is, um, you know, we can we can do it. To, we we feel good when we do it. I suppose that's true of any religion, I guess. 
If you're not able to perceive your desperation to be acknowledged, if you're not able to perceive it, you're probably not going, you're probably going to have a pretty tough life. Okay, well, being a do-gooder, I've been talking about doing good works, that's that's not all there is, of course, to leading a good life. How do you express yourself just as you are? I mean, how do you, how do you have fun? How do you interact with people um, that might not be a so-called doing a good work, but the way we interact with people can be an uh, incredibly wonderful gift to other people. So is your life force allowed to be channeled naturally through you so that you... Uh, uh, or are you busy angling for some sort of praise much of the time? Are you trying to uh, get yourself in a position where others will notice you? What dominates your life? Um, it's really complicated and layered. The, you know, that's what makes looking at mind so interesting is how complicated it is. Even angling for praise can be done in a natural way. So that, you know, we all know people that are... That are incredibly self-assured, almost to the point of being arrogant, and yet we love them because they do it so naturally, you know? Um, So, you know, it's not like there's this bad and good, but this really emphasis on naturalness and being able to drop the um, the, the compulsive thinking and the manipulating and um, you know, all that stuff. Let's see. I guess I'll relate a little something from my life. I'm supposed to do that. Hmm. Kochi told me to be natural. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to relate something from my life that's important in my life. And, and that has to do with music because when I was young, I wanted nothing more than to be a musician. And, but I didn't have any training, and uh, all I wanted, all I could, the only way I could approach, there was this very, very big in me to impress people, because I didn't believe in myself, and I had, it was important to me to, you know, express myself to people and let them know that I was really, you know, I had this deep thing going on in me. But you know what? I couldn't do it at all. I could not ever play music in front of anybody. I was totally paralyzed because impressing them was so important, impressing myself. So um, I, um, well, anyway, it was a long story in my life and music and everything, but uh, I'll just fast forward to when I retired. So when I retired, I, I'm single, I don't know you know, grandchildren and all that stuff. To, so I decided that what I would do would be go back to music in my, in my retirement and, and study it and have a professional teacher and, you know, do, see what I could do. And um, it was amazing to me how different my approach to music was in this coming back to it. Um, I have to attribute some of it to old age. You know, I was older. You know, when you get older, there's not so much need to impress anybody because, well, you, know, you don't have that much of a future. <laughs> and uh, 
but I have to attribute. But for some reason, I love to perform. I just love to play music for people and with people and with people. I love it, and I'm so grateful that you know I got this. And I think I have to attribute a lot of that to my practice. That my practice um, allowed me to uh, get over some of this uh, needy, needy, neediness. And so I feel so good about that that I finally came to some um, some fruition. Came out of all of this endless playing. I used to play the piano all the time when I was young, but by myself all the time. Anyway. Um, so that's my little story and how good that feels to me to to now be able to express through in that way. Oh. Okay. So good we talked about good karma. I wanted to mention good karma. Why is good karma not enough? I think our our religion more than most wants to go past good karma. A lot of religions uh, at least the way they're practiced now, seem to be quite content to have good karma, do good things, but you know, not go go much farther than that. I mean, I'm a, I marvel at Christians and some of the wonderful good deeds that they do. You know, you know those people, those Christians that set up that camp in the border of Mexico when Trump was keeping it. You know, to hear about these things, it's it's awesome, and I, I always wish you know. And I wish we could do things like that too, but our emphasis doesn't seem to be there. Our emphasis is a little bit more on getting into this true self. So why is it important to get to the true self? Um, so karma comes from our separate selves. When we can do things coming from a mind of no separation, um, then we aren't separate. When we do works from a separate self, it's inevitable that other separate selves will rise to the occasion. You do something, even in good works, you do good works from a separate self, you know, other people are going to try to do better works than you do. <laughs> you know, if you go, I'm, I'm king of the mountain, then someone else is going to step up and be king of the mountain. And, you know, they're going to pop up everywhere like little gophers and all those people. So competition is, gets bred even by good karma. Um, and so um, this is where we end up. We end up with wars and, um, you know, an awful lot of competitiveness that uh, does not do well for the world. So I'll just re read uh, one of the books I uh, read in addition in in tandem with reading the uh, Platform Sutra is a book by Shoto Harada, who is a living Roshi, has a, has a monastery up in Puget Sound. Uh, he wrote a book called Not One Single Thing, a Commentary on the Platform Sutra. So he says, ridding the world of terrorists is an important goal, as is feeding all who are hungry. But if no one cultivates the clear-seeing eye that receives all people equally, there will be no permanent solutions. To realize the deep original mind is the true merit. That's it for me. And thanks for listening.
But do you want to take any questions? Yeah, sure. Okay. Go ahead. Sure. You went into the chant. I thought maybe you didn't. I thought we did. I, yeah, sometimes we do the chant first, sometimes we don't. No, I, I, I did want to. So, Rich. So, I have some thoughts about this. Can I share them? Please. Okay. So, when I heard you were talking about no merit and this, far, this very famous phrase from Bodhidharma, I went and looked up what merit was. And what I discovered was that in the early Buddhism, there was this thing called merit making, where if you, you know, as we know, if you have good karma, you would have a favorable rebirth. And in the Mahayana, it's more about transfer of merit, where we give our merit, just like we did with this last chant, about transferring the merit for the benefit of all beings. So it seems to me that the encounter between Emperor Wu and Bodhidharma was like a new, the, the new guys the, with facing the old guard. You know, like the, the, the new guys, the Mahayana people, confronting the old view of merit. Like saying, so Bodhidharma was saying, you know, we don't hold on to the merit, we don't try to get to a favorable rebirth, or benefit, have it use it for our own benefit. We give it away for the sake of all beings, because we're all connected, right? Is that, does that make sense? I, I can't argue with it. Uh, yeah. I mean, the Mahayana was still doing rebirth, though. I mean, I don't. I'm a little afraid of getting into rebirth. <laughs> but like the idea was that you know, in the the Dharmakaya, there's just this merit that's transferred generally to everybody. Like it's it's like it's returns to the ocean of reality and everything. Yeah, because we're all we're all full of rose nature, so we have that merit. And it's not like just for me. Right, to, right. To aggrandize myself, yeah. like you know, I assume that the emperor was thinking, "Well, if I'm an emperor now, I want to be a god in my next life." <laughs> you know, like all of us are like trying to level up. You know, yeah, yeah. And so, so our, our practice then is not about leveling up or trying to, you know, compete with our yeah. Our it's a, it's a, it's about not trying to get anything it's not for to what get we ahead do. Of anybody yeah. else? It's not yeah. a competition to get yeah. more merit to to get ahead and get a better life next time. Yeah, you know right, I mean? right. Yeah, that's another way of ambition, of trying to get a better, trying to be reborn in the next higher realm. It's still trying to get something. Right. We're so not reborn at all. We're not reborn at all. <laughs> so in, in a sense, it's about looking at the greater good instead of looking at our own self-interest. And just Yeah, yeah, you know, certainly, of course, yes. What's yes. for the benefit of all. Yes, that's right. We're not separate, so... It's like the pillow thing, you know. Yeah. It, that that was helped this one person, but that's the benefit of all. So I have a question in here, but I guess this is a little bit of maybe my understanding, or what I believe to be my understanding. Confucianism, Hinduism—they really focused on people playing a role and playing their roles well in society, or at least this is a really. Um, basic understanding and with this Mahayana understanding that was you need to be yourself to truly uh, allow Buddha nature to reach its potential what for me is difficult is it's so much easier to play a role 
in than it is because I don't mm. know when I'm in like big cell mm. or maybe sometimes I do but you're, you're like talking about throughout the day we go into and I'll just say big self I know there's no self but big self um, and I do believe that I think we do throughout the day I go into big self and often don't realize it but what is a way to tell that <laughs> 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 you're in big self versus playing a role really well Does it feel natural? Does it feel uncontrived? That's where looking at your thoughts is so important. Um, Maybe looking at motivation, I guess. Is yeah, looking at yeah, like your motives. Examining your, that those, those yeah. thoughts. Mm. Um, I, I, I think you feel lighter. You feel, um, yeah. Kind of a, it could be almost like a physical harmony thing. I, mean, I think so. Like there's I think different so. little clues. Yeah. I mean, I don't know when I'm doing that. I don't know. You know, it's like I, think, I always think of Rinzai saying to uh, the, his monks, he said, I, I, I can see. Oh, darn. I forgot. What, what was this expression? It's such a, so beautiful. I can see the man. I can see the man of no rank facing, uh, floating through your face as I look at you. You know, mm. And... Uh, I don't know. I, I don't that, know like when I'm like that, yeah. and I don't. I guess I just have to not worry too much about it, knowing. And that may be part of it too. Remember yeah. what Koji said about uh, who was it? The Mizumi Roshi. Somebody asked him, what, "What's it like to be enlightened?" And he said, "He said he it's said a it's, downer. It's, it's a real downer. Yeah." But who knows? I don't know what he really meant by that. <laughs> so, you know, maybe we shouldn't worry about so much about being there. <laughs> yeah. I just wanted to add to that. I just had a thought. Sometimes, and you can't always tell in the moment, but afterwards you can look at the effects of what you did and how people responded. And if they that's responded true. That's to a good point. In a natural, fluid way, and that's a good sign that you're in that state. Yeah, yeah. And if they're reactive, then you probably brought something reactive there. Exactly. Not necessarily, yeah. but Thank you. that's something to notice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was hoping somebody had a better answer than I did. <laughs> I like to ask unanswerable questions. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, stay. You didn't know that story? No. Oh. And, um, <laughs> it's kind of painful to think about it. <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, every picture or depiction that I've seen of Bodhidharma had those his his eyes like that, and I never understood why. And now it, it's just so clear. <laughs> There's a reason. <laughs>
I have experienced, um, I studied music, I was a professional musician for 10 years. I'm no longer a professional musician, but. You were a drummer, right? I was, yes. And, and um, uh, I just remember struggling with this. This was before I really knew anything about Buddhism, but I knew that when I was trying to gain something, my performance suffered. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And my audience uh, kind of suffered along with me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I didn't suffer that bad. <laughs> Do you say it's about the music? That's mm -hmm. what I would say mm -hmm. to myself. And um, that helped often. But I think to Anne's question, it makes me think about um, one of the things that I have, um, that, that uh, Zazen has really uh, helped with is the idea of, am I putting something extra on, as you say? Very good. Mm -hmm. And um, I am able to notice that more. For example, sometimes I notice I'm trying to be funny <laughs> at work when I'm managing my team. And sometimes they laugh, but also sometimes it's like, why am I, why am I putting this extra thing there? Um, I, don't know, it just, I just notice extra sometimes. Good. And I find that to be helpful. But I will also say that the idea of true self um, I, uh, that is a gaining idea to me. It's a thing to become, a thing to gain, a thing to do. I find it much easier to not uh, put extra. So it's almost like a negation is easier for me. You mean looking, trying to find your true self is, in, is trying to do something. Yes, yes. It, it trying to be enlightened or whatever, yeah. It's an extra thing. Yeah. Yeah. I can focus Good on point noticing the extra and in that way trying to maybe take it away and maybe true self comes from that but I don't know and I don't even want to pay attention to that you said maybe true self comes from trying to find true self? from trying to take away extra yeah I, I think so I think it uncovers that's what Zen is all about it's about dropping things dropping, 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 cutting, cutting this out of your um, and then what's left is this wondrous true sound, which I need to know. Thank you for your comments. Hey, Crystal. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. I forgot you called. Do you mind if, if Crystal is... Oh, Karen? Yes, Karen. Sorry. I never even looked over there. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and we're good. Um, yeah, I was just thinking about, I think this is a wonderful discussion, I really appreciate what folks just said, and, um, but this thing about, you know, do you know when you're, you know, maybe in some kind of realization, and I was thinking about the um, chant that we do, the self-receiving and employing samadhi, mm -hmm. um, because there's a great paragraph in there, and I always love it, because I just... I just feel like it's this sort of freeing thing that they, they talk about, you know, how you will, when you practice, you will have this kind of realization. And then it says, all this, however, does not appear within perception. 
because it is unconstructedness. It is immediate realization. If practice and realization were two things, as it appears to an ordinary person, it could be recognized separately, but what can be met with recognition is not realization itself, because realization is not reached by a deluded mind. So to me, that kind of says, well, I, I, this person thinking about things and wondering how I'm doing or thinking about how other people are responding to me, that whole level of things is not where all of this is happening. So there may be times when I'm there, but I don't maybe need to worry about it because this little mind doing stuff isn't going to perceive it. Does that, is that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. That's, that was a great thing to quote. Yes, I love it. Yeah, I love that chant, that reading that we do. We do that in the morning. Is that the sutra that has the hammer striking emptiness in it? I think it does. Which is just one of my... I always want to hear the hammer striking emptiness. Yes, it is. striking emptiness before and after its exquisite field permeates everywhere. How can it be limited to this moment? <laughs> it's German for you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much, Karen. That was and Crystal, you yeah. yeah, um my experience in Zen and especially in monasteries is how it's all about roles and it's all about doing things in unison and it is about these prescribed sort of things. So can you talk about original faith in that context? It kind of seems a little bit contradictory to me. Everything's contradictory. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I, once, I once heard that if something's not paradoxical, it's not worth thinking about. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't know, is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> Is still there. It's always there. What? Can I ask something about Bodhidharma? Um, If you look carefully at his at his representations, including painted ones, he really is shown as very different from Japanese. He's got he's got a hairy body. You can see there's hair on his feet. He's almost like partly in the animal world. And then there's the blue eyes and the red big red beard. You know, and uh, so he really is. You know, this different kind of human, so it's really emphasized, and yet he's embraced by the Japanese tradition of Zen. But his difference isn't denied, you know. And um, so look, look at his representations, it's kind of interesting. But the other thing is that when he says, the last thing he says before he leaves the emperor is, the emperor says, who are you? <laughs> like, I'm expecting some teaching here, you know, I'm getting no merit and nothing, nothing holy. Like, who are you? And he says, I don't know. And that I don't know is like related to what you're talking about, I think, in that he's free of fixed ideas about who he is. Mm-hmm. Right? And he goes off. And, and the other interesting thing is he leaves, and the tradition tells us that one of the emperor's courtiers you know, comes and says, you know, do you know who that 
who that was actually? And he says, no. <laughs> he says, that was Avalokiteshvara. That, that monk was a manifestation of Avalokiteshvara. He looks nothing like our representations of Avalokiteshvara, right? But that was the embodiment of Avalokiteshvara who came to help. <laughs> and the emperor says, well, go get him, get him, bring him back. And he said, you could send the whole army and he wouldn't come back. Yeah. So there's this one encounter and it's the one chance for the emperor, you know, to like meet Avalokiteshvara in the flesh. And Bodhidharma is free of positions. You know, I think we go through these positions in monasteries or in work, right? And then you drop that, right? And you're and you're no you're nobody. <laughs> Who are you? You're nobody. It's freedom is what they're pointing to. So all the things that Pat said, yes, you know. Well, I'm, gl I'm glad you thing. added that. Because that statement of this did have me you know, you know, balled up and confused. Thank you so much. Thank you for your talk. Yeah. Oh, Very oh sorry. Oh, okay. Matt. I just want to pass this along. I asked this question once to a teacher, and his response helped me a lot. But basically, how do I know if I'm a Buddha or in Buddha nature or whatever you want to say? And he just said to me um, that if you're asking the question, you're not. <laughs> that has stuck with me. It's been so helpful. <laughs> but you are. <laughs> Despite the question. Well, the question's extra. Right, but like, who's asking? Yeah. Right. Who's asking? Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Did you have something else, Crystal? Uh, well, I appreciate Charlotte's comment because, I, as you were saying that, I was thinking that I had this idea that original face was fixed, but maybe that's actually not, and so then that kind of... The original face was fi fixed? Fixed. Oh, a fixed yeah. original like face. Like, it's a thing that is like this, even though I don't think I know what it is yet, but, oh. but maybe it's not even fixed, so... I don't think so. Nothing's fixed. You think it's fixed? No. no. Oh, no, it's not fixed. fixed. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the... <laughs> mm. Okay, well, again, thanks, and thanks for all the great comments. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.